is Young Lawyer Rising from the ABA Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. I'm your new host, Montana Funk. Today I'm speaking with Maryam Aranjani, criminal and constitutional law professor at the University of New Mexico and the current reporter of the ABA Women in Criminal Justice Task Force. Mary Ann and I will be discussing what challenges women in the criminal legal system face and how the task force, as well as young professionals, can take action to help remedy those challenges. Good morning, Mary Ann. Good morning, Montana. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it, you know, I'm super excited about this. You know, we talked on the phone a couple of days ago and I was telling you how I'm very recent to the the criminal law world. I did civil before that and now I'm in the criminal area. So this is a topic that's super important to me and I think, you know, something that really needs to be touched on more. So I really am excited for today and grateful that you're willing to speak. Thank you, Montana. I'm excited to speak with you as well. So just to start, we'll go simple. Can you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am a law professor at the University of New Mexico School of Law, as you mentioned, and my teaching and my scholarship are focused on the intersection of criminal law, constitutional law, and education law. And I've been teaching law full-time for about six years. This is my seventh seventh and a half year. Um, and a number of years ago, it's been now about four years ago, I was intrigued to learn about the new formation of a task force to look at this issue of women criminal lawyers and any barriers that may exist to our success. And so, yeah, more recently, I've been really focused on the research and the writing and the bringing together of the task force members, our board of advisor members and other folks to try to have um, meaningful conversations and hopefully action around this issue. And I know that we, you and I had spoken previously, we kind of had talked about how the task force had done the research phase. And now it seems like you guys are kind of segueing into a more of an action approach and, you know, actually creating solutions. But I think it is kind of important for our listeners to hear just briefly, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about what that research entailed and what you guys actually discovered through that research. Sure. Thank you. I agree. I think it's important to understand why the task force was created, what we found, because those things will contextualize our recommendations. So the task force was formed in late 2018 when a staff, then staff member for the criminal justice section, her name is Emily Johnson, realized that there was a imbalance in the membership of the section. And the section is very large. At the time, there were 16,000 members and only a quarter of them were women. And so she started asking questions about why that might be. And the chair of the section at that time, um, a professor at Belmont University, Lucien Durvan, was very intrigued as well and, and moved to create a task force to look at this issue. He appointed two very well-respected members of the criminal justice section, leaders in the criminal justice section, Professor Carla LaRoche, who's now at Washington and Lee Law School, and Tina Luongo, who is the chief of the criminal division of the New York City Legal Aid Society. So the two of them were tasked with looking at challenges, particularly those relating to hiring, 
retention, and promotion of women criminal lawyers, and then to provide recommendations to address those challenges. Hopefully, along the way, bringing in more women and more diverse women into this section. So I was invited to serve as the reporter after, you know, a process where they they looked at some different folks who were interested. And then simultaneously, Tina and Carla created an incredibly diverse task force and diverse in every way. Women who have experience you know, long experience in the criminal legal system. Some who are, who, we had one person who was a law student at the time that she was invited to join the task force. We vary in terms of immigration status, in terms of geography, where we're located in the country, racial and ethnic background, religion, every way you can think of. It's a, just a very important part of the task force for people to understand that um, Tina and Carla intentionally you know, wanted leadership from from people who who represent all different points of view, and um, that also and the and the reason that the seats at the table needed to be diverse is also important because we we wanted then when we went into the phase of doing research and starting to have listening sessions, we wanted to make sure that we went to places where the ABA had not gone, where we heard from women and non non binary folks who are traditionally you know, not part of these conversations, people in rural communities, native communities, you know, so we really were intentional. We've been intentional at every step of the way in trying to be inclusive in this process. So, you know, just to highlight that those were the goals to identify the challenges to hiring retention and promotion of women in criminal law, and also then to to work on recommendations to address those challenges. So the research phase involved really my looking at any existing qualitative and quantitative research with regard to this question. And I don't know if this will surprise your listeners or not. I suppose it depends on their closeness to this issue, but there really wasn't much. Um, there hasn't been a lot of research on this particular issue of, of gender equity for women criminal lawyers. And frankly, even for, for women lawyers, generally speaking, there isn't as much research as one might think exists. And there is some research that's been done um, that really focuses on women in large law firms, or we found another really good study done by the Hispanic National Bar Association of women, of Latina women who are public interest lawyers. Um, so there's some overlap there in terms of our interests. But anyway, so I did a thorough literature review and, and then we launched into the qualitative phase of our original research, which was to host over an 18 month period between late 2018 and the middle of 2020, 12 listening sessions around the country where we organized women, invited women and non-binary folks to join us and talk about their experiences as criminal lawyers. And I should quickly add, while most of our participants have been traditional, you know, public defenders and prosecutors at the state and federal levels, we also included folks that are involved in nonprofit advocacy or in private criminal defense work or at foundations doing criminal reform work. So we did, we did cast a wide net and really, really wanted to make sure we, we heard different perspectives. So in total, we heard from almost 200 people through those listening sessions from everywhere from Spokane, Washington to Washington, DC to Tallahassee, Florida to Albuquerque, where I live. 
including one listening session we had with very experienced women over Zoom uh, during the pandemic in June of 2020. And, you know, before we go into the takeaways, and I do think it's really important to share those, just for our listeners and kind of taking a step back, can you just kind of explain to them what being a reporter means, just exactly what your position entails for those who may not fully understand? Sure. That's a great question, Montana. And the, and the, it's a role that is, that exists in the ABA. So the ABA, different sections can create task forces to look at different issues. And oftentimes the person who really makes sure that the task force stays on task and completes the mission they are tasked with completing, um, and, and reporting, literally reporting on that work is the reporter. My understanding, the role sort of varies from task force to task force. And ours has been, we actually have extended our task force for a year beyond where when we were supposed to, just because of the pandemic and the delays related with that. But yeah, my role has been to pull those listening sessions together to make sure that we have regular meetings with the task force members, really to support the co-chairs, Tina and Carla, with their vision of the task force and then really to write and speak about our work. So I've published two law review articles, one in the Berkeley Journal of Criminal Law and another one in the Minnesota Law Review online and numerous criminal justice magazine columns uh, myself, but also other task force members. Some of the participants in our listening sessions have written those columns. And then we also have all engaged in sort of local news, media and podcasts and things like that, wherever those opportunities arise. Thank you, Maryam. And I think that it is important for our listeners to hear what your role is in the task force and how that task force does work as a team to, you know, create their research and all the actions that you guys are taking. So I appreciate you filling us in on your role. And I do want to get into talking about, you know, the results of the research briefly. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break to just hear a message. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is. And that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. And 
And welcome back, listeners. We're still here with Maryam. And before we went on our break, we were talking about the research that the task force has taken on. Maryam, can you tell us a little bit about what the research showed, what the results that you guys actually found from that research? Sure, I'd love to. And I do invite your listeners to look at the longer explanations of what I'm about to describe for those who are interested, because there's some really important and poignant experiences that are articulated in those two law review articles I mentioned, as well as in the criminal justice magazine columns. And we also did a, I should mention, we did a report that was uh, published on the CJS website uh, called Pulling Back the Curtain in October of last year, which is really a, a good piece to learn more about the findings. But I'd like to just broadly share with your listeners what we identified as challenges. So we did find that there are challenges to hiring, promotion, and retention of women in criminal law. What we found is, in particular, hiring doesn't seem to be as much of a challenge. And by the way, I'm reporting not just on those listening sessions, but on surveys that we did as well of women in these spaces. So we did find that there are less, people report less challenges in hiring, but more in, um, certainly in retention and definitely in promotion. And so to spell out a little bit more what that means we found that women seem to really be asking for a culture shift and understanding about their individually unique and collectively unique experiences um, that are really reflected more in policies, procedures, and climate in workspaces, criminal law workspaces. So that's the first big one was culture shift. The second was we identified that our participants really are looking for more allyship, mentorship, and sponsorship. So different kinds of support through folks in their offices or just, you know, in other spaces. But um, they're looking for people to really work with them, help them identify their strengths, help them work on their growth areas, help them get to where they want to go in ways that traditionally men have, you know, had access to. The third major area that we found there seems to be a challenge is flexibility. And in the middle of all this work, of course, the pandemic happened. And so we saw interesting shifts in, for example, remote work, even more flexibility with regard to work hours. And so, you know, that opened up the possibility for more recommendations with regard to flexibility. But but still, the nature of appearing in court and court being opened until 5 p.m. and just the challenges of litigation, of intense schedules, deadlines, and the intensity of the emotional intensity of the work require more flexibility, according to the participants we heard from. Now, the final is with regard to support and training. So we heard from many women that They don't have access to the kind of training universally that I think some of your listeners may have experienced if they live in big cities. And I lived in, um, I'm from Chicago, and then I lived in Washington, D.C. for many years um, when, as I started my professional life after law school. And so I've been really um, humbled to see the lack of training and support in many places across the country. And so we talked about, you know, broadly, what are the things that could be done? to better support and train 
women in the workplaces. And that includes, um, you know, physical spaces, I mean, in terms of the support, as well as better access to affordable childcare, um, better access to therapy and other mental health supports. While it's required by the federal government, federal law, and also ABA policy recommends specifics with regard to lactation spaces, we found that many women also identified that another space, a wellness space, where they could decompress after trial, where they could handle personal matters that come up during the day of other caregiving responsibilities, where they may not have the privacy in their workspaces. They may need that to, you know, sort of handle the work and be able to also manage all the, all the outside obligations that they have as well. Now, do you think that the issues that you're seeing with promotion as well of women in the criminal legal system also are following along with the same challenges and that's why women maybe aren't being promoted as much? Or why do you think that the promotion is an issue as well? So that's a good question, Montana. What we heard, there are a number of challenges for promotion. One is that for the person who is going to law school relatively soon out of college and then hoping to start a family, planning to start a family after law school at some point during their childbearing years, that also coincides with the opportunities for promotion. And so without the flexibility to manage having a child or multiple children, all the physical aspects of that, as well as the increased responsibility, we just found from a lot of women, they, they don't feel like there's breathing room um, to be able to be promoted, either self-imposed or actually imposed by their employers. So that's one big thing. Another, another big challenge is the lack of transparency about how to be promoted. So we found in many places, women report they don't know what they need to do. There's so few opportunities for promotion. And it seems like certain people get promoted just somehow, you know, without really um, having access to those very clearly articulated, you know, goals that we would all like to see when we want to be promoted. No, absolutely. And I'm not sure that you would know the answer to this, but do you know where these women are going if, you know, whether or not they're leaving their workplace or, you know, staying in maybe their position, but then going to a different firm because they're not getting promoted from their original firm? Where, where are you seeing that most women are going or I guess what they're doing to try to remedy these injustices? Or is there a remedy that women already have? Or how, I mean, what's your opinion on that? That's a really good question, Montana. As you can imagine, as a, from a research standpoint, I feel like I have to say this as a, as a professor. From a research standpoint, it's really difficult to gather that information. I mean, how would we, how would we find those women that left the profession, right? Or left mm -hmm. criminal law? I mean, it, it's, it's a tricky question to actually be able to answer in any quantitative way. But I can certainly tell you that we made an effort to reach out where the task force members had contacts. And by the way, I should mention the task force members are, you know, very prominent in their, in their spaces. We have a federal court of appeals judge, several uh, state court judges, other professors from around the country and, and other practitioners who have lots of great contacts. So we were able to bring in women who really have left either the profession altogether or have left criminal law practice or have moved from one space to another because of the challenges that they experience, gender-related challenges. So I'll give you some examples of what we heard. We heard women move from trial work to appellate work, that appellate work seems to offer the kind of schedule and, and flexibility that many, and, and frankly, the, the emotional toll is different. 
So that's one, one space. We also see women moving into, um, starting their own criminal defense practices. So they have more control over their schedules that way. Then we did hear from some people who moved from employers that won't allow remote work to employers that will. And that may be in a whole different practice area or it may be outside of law practice altogether. So there are a lot of different things that, um, you know, that women have done to try to balance their careers and their need to work with the realities of the system. But one of the things that I think is important to mention right away is is that the recommendations of the task force, we believe, and we very carefully have thought about this all the way along for the last four years, is we believe the recommendations that we have are going to positively affect everybody involved in the system. Um, we believe that it's important to have women as criminal lawyers, that there are special relationships and, and tasks and skills that women bring to the table uh, in terms of criminal law practice that make it important for them to be recognized and, and supported and promoted in the field. And so our success is really the success of the criminal legal system, in our view. Absolutely. And I do think that, you know, it's important to also talk not just about, you know, what you've seen with your research, but how to be proactive with, you know, young professionals, even just professionals in general, to be proactive, to try to help remedy some of these challenges. But before we get into that, we are going to take a quick break to listen to a message. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Starting a new career in the law can feel overwhelming. The ABA YLD provides resources, CLE, and a network of peers from coast to coast to help you settle into your new legal career. Claim your Young Lawyer membership for just $75 at ambar.org join. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. back. Thank you so much, Maryam, for bearing with me here. I promise I only have a couple more questions for you. But before the break, we were kind of talking about just how, you know, everything coming together with the research and what you're seeing in terms of promotion, hiring, retention issues with women in the system, and then where you're seeing those women go to, you know, if they're leaving. And I think that's something that's really important and kind of necessary to talk about in this podcast is how do you think people, whether it be people coming out of law school or young attorneys or just in general professionals across the board, how do you think that people can take action to help either prevent these injustices that you're seeing or obviously prevention isn't always possible? So what steps people can take to help remedy the injustices once they're already starting? 
Yes, Montana. I'm really glad you're asking this question because I want to make sure this conversation feels relevant to your listeners. And so what I want to say is everyone has to make choices for themselves. We, we don't all have the same bandwidth, you know, today that we may have tomorrow or that, that we may, as our peers may have. And so I think I want to definitely recognize and honor that, that everybody has a different way of handling injustice in their lives. Um, I also think it's very important to address the additional intersectional challenges that some of your listeners may experience based on various identities they have. Being a Black queer woman may mean that you have a different experience as a criminal lawyer than you do if you're a white woman who, you know, may have grown up in a big city with privileges and access to lots of resources. And, And I don't mean to simplify, you know, just to those identities, but just to point out that, you know, we heard a lot from from women um, of color and black women in particular, but also native and indigenous women and um, Hispanic women, Asian women, immigrant women, that, you know, the additional expectations and stereotypes and mistreatment that they face, that we face based on those intersectional identities is real. So hopefully by talking about all of this, at least we're opening a space. I can tell you that by participating in our listening sessions, many of our partners found that just finding a space where they could talk about their experiences was cathartic and even productive, that they could then advocate as a group in ways that they couldn't as an individual. Um, So that's one approach is to kind of try to find similar like-minded people who've had experiences similar to your own Another is to really take on leadership roles in your office, offer to create a DEI committee if it doesn't already exist or join the DEI committee, the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee, to make sure to elevate the experiences that your listeners may be having. Another would be, you know, to reach out to us either individually or as a group to to ask for support. We have many resources we'd be very happy to connect your listeners to. I want to also say that the written work we've produced, we want to be, we have been very careful to make sure it could be of use to your listeners, both to help them feel that they're not alone by reading the stories and the data uh, related to this question, but also so they can take that very real information to their supervisors and folks in their offices to say, hey, and we've already heard from women who have done this. Hey, look at what's happening here. This is exactly what I've experienced Um, And this is a national phenomenon. And I want to just also hopefully transition to our 10 principles, because that's going to be another written work product that we hope, and this moves us into the action phase. We've been working very hard to distill everything we've heard, all the research, all the experiences of the women into 10 principles for gender equity in criminal legal employment. And so we're working right now to achieve the Criminal Justice Section Council's blessing to move forward with those recommendations. And we hope that your listeners who may be experiencing injustice could then take what will be a resolution from the ABA, hopefully next year, that, you know, identifies these real challenges and gives a roadmap to employers for how to do better. And so, um, yeah, we're hopeful that having these conversations and using this work to um, help individual women will be productive. 
And do you think that the work that you guys are completing and putting out there, do you think that that also would help women in the civil realm as well of the law? And I know we discussed earlier that a lot of big firms are kind of having some research and that's more focused on, but just in general, you know, women in total in the legal system, do you think that if someone, let's say one of our listeners is practices civilly, do you think that they would also benefit from those different things that the tax force is putting out? Absolutely. We do. We believe that many of the issues we heard are universal challenges for women lawyers, but also, frankly, just women workers in America. You know, this lack of access to high quality and affordable childcare is a, is a national flashing red stop sign. I mean, it's something that we have to deal with as a society. So yes, we do think there will be crossover. We also, though, don't want to lose the, again, the, the unique space of being a litigator and handling very emotional work, uh, either on behalf of people accused of crime or on behalf of the government and the community. And that women, you know, have taken on the trauma of, of those experiences in ways that are unique and that deserve attention. So yes, we hope it will be applicable, but we also want to make sure that the criminal lawyers get what they need. Absolutely. And Miriam, one last question for you, and this is an easy one. Can you tell our listeners where else they can find you and follow you for more information? Yes, absolutely. So the ABA criminal justice section website has the task force listed there. I'm also honestly very happy to hear from people directly, and I will be happy to spell my email address out for those who might be interested in emailing me, and then I can connect people to other resources that might be helpful in their particular cases. So my email is Maryam, M-A-R-Y-A-M, period, Aranjani, A-H-R-A-N-J-A-N-I, at law.unm.edu. And if your listeners are ABA members, criminal justice section members, um, they should be able to access also the uh, the materials that I mentioned, the Pulling Back the Curtain report, as well as the criminal justice section columns that I mentioned. And those two law review articles that I mentioned are just available online. Anybody can access them. You can just, the first one is called Toughen Up Buttercup versus Hashtag Time's Up. And that was the Berkeley Journal of Criminal Law article. And the second one I mentioned is called Sprinting a Marathon, Next Steps for Gender Equity in the Criminal Legal System. And that one was published by the Minnesota Law Review. Perfect. Well, Maryam, thank you so much for this conversation today. I think it's one that's extremely important and honestly not talked about enough. So I'm really grateful that you were able to talk today. And I think our listeners are going to have a lot of takeaways for this. And hopefully this episode is an outlet for them to either, you know, make the change that they need to in order to feel comfortable in the workplace and take those steps to feel like they're getting listened to the way they deserve. Or like you said, just a talking point in general for people across the board to kind of talk about the different injustices that women face in the legal system and how they can remedy such. So I really do appreciate you jumping on with me today. Thank you, Montana. I appreciate you as well. You have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Now we're going to head over to Julie Marrow, and she's going to be telling us about when pop culture meets the law. Good afternoon, Julie. Good afternoon, Montana. How are you? I'm good. How are you? 
Good, and I'm your host, Julie Marrow, everyone. Welcome to Pop Law. And today we are going to be talking about being sued over posting your own paparazzi photos. What do you think about that, Montana? I think that's kind of hilarious. And I actually recently saw a TikTok on this where this girl was going through different people's paparazzi photos and telling people like if she thought they were staged or if they submitted their own. And I was like, do people actually do that? I never knew that that's... Oh, yeah, <laughs> I've heard of that. It's very yeah. strange. Yeah. So Lisa Rena, who is Rena, I think is how you say her name, but mm -hmm. she's a soap opera star. She's been on The Housewives and she's getting sued by Batgrid right now. And I guess that these lawsuits are very common and they're suing her for over a million dollars for um, posting photos on her Instagram that were taken by them. Question. So they took photos of her and then she took the photos that they took and put them on her Instagram? Yes. Oh, interesting. So they're technically their work product, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So apparently these copyright lawsuits are really common, but hers is getting traction because um, she's actually pushing back and kind of fighting back. And most of these end in settlements from I saw some in recent years. There's been with Justin Bieber, Taylor Swift, Kim Kardashian, and they typically settle out. But Lisa's pushback kind of rests on... COVID and she's blaming, um, I guess that this backward agency has filed a lot of copyright lawsuits since, especially since COVID started. And her theory is that they're losing business because celebrities are staying inside oh, and they God. aren't getting as many pictures. Oh gosh. But I don't know. I think it makes sense in a way once I looked into it a little more that these agencies, that is how they make their money is selling mm -hmm. these photos and really selling the news. And I think overall that whole industry is hurt so much by the internet now because you don't have to buy a people magazine to see these pictures anymore. But at the same time, it's your Instagram and your private account. And then there's the argument, well, your Instagram's monetized. But it's also interesting too, because it's like, yeah, you're taking pictures of my life, though. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I bet you there's kind of back and forth because I can see it from, like, some people who are like, well, yeah, I get this as your job, but also, like, you're kind of invading on my privacy, so why wouldn't I have the right to post them? But then the side that you're saying with these companies, that like, that's how they make their money is, like, being able to sell the story. So how do you make the money if they're then taken by the actual celebrity? Yeah, it's interesting. And, yeah, with the celebrity, it's like it's just a picture of a random person if the celebrity hasn't put the work into have some caliber that somebody wants a photo. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I don't think anyone's paying over a million dollars for a picture of me, but that's I was okay. going to say, I, you know, I haven't had my first paparazzi run in yet with the podcast, but you never know. Maybe one day we will. Maybe. That would <laughs> be like, exciting. Those are the girls from Young Lawyer Rising. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah, right. So we'll keep up with Lisa and I hope it works out for her. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> All right. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time for Pop Law, where pop culture meets the law. I'm your host, Julie Marrow. Thank you so much, Julie. That was awesome. Well, listeners, that's our show. I want to thank Mary Ann for joining us today to discuss an extremely important topic. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please recommend our show to a friend. We can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Until next time, I am Montana Funk, and you've been listening to Young Lawyer Rising, brought to you by the ABA Young Lawyers Division and the audio professionals at Legal Talk Network.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.